Good morning. It's good to be with you today. We're going to be in Luke 13 this morning. If you'll allow me, I'd like to take just a moment of personal privilege to recognize and welcome two special people here today, Christina and Luther. Christina is my mom and one of the major reasons why I'm in the kingdom. She's your pastor's mama teeny. And a lot of her spirit resides in that young man. It's good to have you with us today. The scripture reads, Luke 13, verses 31 through 35. At that, same, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case... I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. You catch the sarcasm there, don't you? Back in the day, back in the 1840s, our tradition, uh, the Wesleyan tradition, was active in the anti-slavery movement and Wesleyan churches in the north were part of the Underground Railroad helping ferry people to freedom to Canada. One of our churches was in Syracuse, New York, sitting right on the city square. Uh, That church building still exists today. It's an Italian restaurant. But they will take you downstairs if you request And they will show you the area in the basement where escaping slaves hid from the authorities waiting to be taken on to their next stop on the Underground Railroad. Luther Lee was the pastor of that church. And the government declared, as you know, that anyone who was involved in helping slaves escape would be prosecuted. Luther Lee placed an ad in the Syracuse newspaper saying, My name is Pastor Luther Lee. I live at such and such a street in Syracuse, New York. I will continue to help escaping slaves come and get me. That's almost the same spirit that you see in Jesus here. I will continue to do the will of God no matter what the cost. The next passage here, though, reveals the depth of the grief of his heart. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, 
you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and we believe it. Our question for today is, Jesus wept for Jerusalem. Does Jesus weep for Chapel Hill? Pastor Matt recently returned from a trip to Israel, the Holy Land, to three different faith groups, Jewish, Muslim, and Christians. If we were to go there, and we've got a picture that I want to put up here. If we were to go there, one of the things we would do is wind our way around and up onto the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and from there we would look across the Kidron Valley into the city itself, and this is what we would see. Prominent in our sight would be what the Jewish people call the Temple Mount. For us this morning, there are two items that would dominate our conversation. What we see there and what we do not see there. The first thing you see is the beautifully ornate Dome of the Rock with its golden dome shining brightly in the Mideastern sun. It's one of the Islamic religion's three most holy sites. It covers a huge rock from which Muhammad and his horse are said to have leaped into heaven for his night journey. The first dome shrine was completed here in 691 A.D. The veneration of this rock predates the Muhammad story. To all three faiths, it is someplace special because it is said to be the location of the stone on Mount Moriah where Abraham was willing to offer up his son Isaac to God, but God provided a substitute ram for that sacrifice. That's what we see here. What is missing is the holy temple of God, built first on this location by Solomon and destroyed by the Babylonians, followed by a smaller and less elaborate version built by Ezra, and later Herod would dismantle the second temple building and erect one more to the scale and beauty of the first temple. This would be the temple that stood there in Jesus' day. If it were still standing, and we were viewing it from this angle from the Mount of Olives, we would see the golden doors reflecting the glory of the Mideastern summer sun. The temple was destroyed by Titus the Roman in 70 A.D. Somewhere around 60 years later, the Romans would build a temple to Jupiter on this spot. Many scholars believe that the rock under the dome is the location of the Holy of Holies, the most sacred and innermost sanctuary of the Holy Temple, and that the Ark of the Covenant sat upon that rock, and the mercy seat 
the gold-covered place of the sprinkling of sacrificial blood for the atonement of the sins of the people set upon the ark there. Those who are enamored with end-time speculation say that there will be a third temple built on this spot. But that would require the removal of the dome of the rock shrine. You kind of get the reason why it's called end times now, don't you? Because if one religion takes down another religion's shrine to build their own shrine there, it's going to be an interesting time. I'm going to go where angels fear to tread today and talk to you about religion. Pray for me. Religion as it's supposed to work, is a pure-hearted, well-meaning attempt by fallen human beings to restore peace with God and peace with each other by some defined set of holy efforts and expectations. It usually involves a holy set of writings gathered into a holy book that is authoritative in setting out the path for those who hold to that particular religion. That's the way they're supposed to walk. It usually has a group of people who are trained in the understanding of the book and who are officially authorized and set aside to interpret and explain the book to everybody else. It usually is shrouded in some mystery, claims some kind of miraculous events that are meant to authenticate the claims of the religion, and there's usually one person in the history of that religion with whom it originated and who is worshipped or revered by its followers. The followers tend to range on a scale from interested inquirers all the way to rabid zealots. The best religions raise the aspirations of the adherents and result in peaceful and harmonious relationships within the group and outside the group. The worst religions kill people who don't agree with them. Most religions fall somewhere in the middle. Most of the time, there is held out to the believers a promise of some kind of reward in an afterlife for the faithful and some kind of punishment or annihilation of the foolish who fail to convert or conform. There's one thing that is true of every such religion that tries to make peace with God and maintain peace with others through human efforts and initiatives. It doesn't work. The reason it doesn't work is because it's humanistic in its essence. Ask the people of the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament who were trying to build a ziggurat to heaven 
How did that religious effort work out for you? Ask the Egyptian mummies, buried with food, water, clothing, jewelry, and even servants, to take them on their journey to the next world. How did that religious effort work out for you? Go all the way back to Cain, who slew his brother over religious jealousy, and ask him, how did that religious effort work out for you? Our history is full of bad story after bad story that gives overwhelming evidence that religion does not work. Verse 1 of this chapter 13 alludes to the story of the Galileans, it said, whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices. Let's ask them, how did that religious persecution work out for you? Ask Stephen. The first Christian martyr and James, the brother of John, who was next. How did that persecution from religious people work out for you? Ask the eleven faithful disciples and their eventual friend Paul, all of whom but one would die a violent death for their faith at the hands of religious people. How did that work out for you? Ask the Christian who was soaked with oil and set on fire to light up the streets of Nero's Rome. How did that persecution from religious people work out for you? Ask the Mohammedan crushed by the zealous Christian crusader. How did that persecution from religious people work out for you? Ask the Native American who was pushed off his land and confined to a reservation because of the manifest destiny of the white Christian settlers. How did that persecution from religious people work out for you? Ask the young African who was captured and enslaved to power the agricultural industry of the Christian South, how did that persecution from religious people work out for you? Ask Richard Allen, the ex-slave and founder of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, whose people were told they could sit in the balcony if they wanted to, but they were not welcome to worship with the white Methodist in the paid-for pews of the congregation How did that persecution from religious people work out for you? Ask Cynthia's ancestor, James Guthrie, who was a Scottish minister who dissented against the Kirk of Scotland in favor of the Covenanters and who was executed for his dissent. How did that persecution from the Presbyterians work out for you? Ask the young girl in Salem who was accused of being a witch and drowned, which in the twisted thinking of the authorities proved that 
Oh, well, I guess she wasn't a witch after all. How did that persecution from the Puritans work out for you? Ask the Hutu in Watusi territory. How did that persecution from religious people work out for you? Ask the people burnt to death in the Twin Towers or the people killed at their desk at the Pentagon or the people on Flight 93 on 9-11. How did that zealous act of religious sacrifice on the part of those religious people work out for you? Ask the young Christian girls kidnapped by the Boko Haram and made into sex slaves. How did that persecution from religious people work out for you? Ask the 23 young Christian martyrs in Libya who were viciously beheaded by ISIS. How did that persecution from religious people work out for you? Ask the Palestinian family whose home was bulldozed to make room for Israeli settlers in the West Bank. How did that persecution from religious people work out for you? Ask the Yazidis in Iraq or the Kurds in Turkey or the Druze nomads wandering around in the Middle East in northern Syria and southern, I mean northern Israel and southern Syria and Lebanon. How does that persecution from religious people work out for you? Ask the Christian in Sierra Leone whose arm was chopped off by the Muslim rebel. How did that persecution from religious people work out for you? And it goes on and on and on. And the more religious, the more vicious it seems. Human religion leads to persecution of the other in our midst. Ask the three young Muslims senselessly killed in their apartment parking lot right here in Chapel Hill. In the picture we saw earlier, to the left of the shrine of the Dome of the Rock, is the, Al, is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, where two Israeli policemen were killed last week. And the Israeli police force installed metal detectors this week, which resulted in a young Palestinian sneaking in an unlocked back door of an Israeli home on the West Bank and stabbing a father and two grown sons to death and severely wounding the mother as they sat at their table sharing their Sabbath meal. It was an angry retaliation to what was perceived as the desecration of a holy area by placing foreign objects, the metal detectors, there. Does any of that make any sense to you? And as followers of and believers in Christ, we are challenged not to get swept up in such unreasonable and inexcusable activity. And it can happen to us. It can happen, maybe not on that scale, but it can happen in terms of discrimination or hatred or other ways where some other is mistreated 
by us in our holiness. In the process, we try to balance the fact that we live in a diverse culture that recognizes that every religion has value. Every religion teaches good things. Every religion has proper motives at its base. We recognize that. To try to understand all this, we study comparative religion so we can understand other people who were not raised like us. What do they believe and why do they believe that? We try to avoid competitive religion. And so as Christian believers, we get confused about the validity and propriety of evangelism. Wait, isn't that just me trying to convince someone else that my religion is better than theirs? Let me just say to you, it's not your job to convince anyone of anything. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Your job is just to humbly and respectfully tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. We sometimes fall into the temptation of composite religion. All religions are the same. No, they're not. Be intellectually honest at this point and recognize that all religions are not the same. And in fact, all religions are distinct from one another. They all have value in terms of what we value as human beings, but they all have different and distinct roots. We do know that we do not want to be involved in perpetuating or being victimized by combative religion, which seems to dominate our news these days. But combative religion doesn't just happen out there in the Middle East or in some terror attack someplace. Maybe you're one of those people like a friend of mine in this congregation whose parents went to church shouting hallelujah on Sunday morning and then ended up beating them senseless sometime later that week. I'm so sorry if that is your experience at the hand of religious people. And we are here to love that pain out of you. Do not identify God, your heavenly Father, with any of that meanness from hell. He loves you with an everlasting healing, comforting, and protecting love. And we do too. You can trust him. You can trust us. Let us love that pain out of you. So, what makes Jesus weep over Chapel Hill? Let me give you three quick examples from my experience as a person who loves this town. As a pastor here, I observe that every cause in the world finds a home in Chapel Hill. That is noble and good. Every cause, from world peace to immigration issues to racial healing and reconciliation to homelessness to identity issues to poverty to hunger to abuse issues 
to saving the whales, to conservation, to education, to human trafficking, to women's rights. Every cause finds a welcome and a host of advocates in this town. And that is wonderful. Chapel Hill is willing to get involved and bring about change. And the churches are welcomed and expected to join in on the effort. The resistance comes when you mention Jesus. Help us, but leave Jesus at home. They want everything Jesus has to offer, but they don't want Jesus. In the mindset of many in Chapel Hill, Jesus is a problem. Jesus is divisive because Jesus is more than an idea. Religion is welcome because religion is based on ideas. But Jesus is a person. And especially if you claim that he rose from the dead, it's hard to argue with a person who came back to life from the dead. So it happens that there are certain exclusive claims that pertain to Jesus that make Chapel Hill nervous. So what do we do? Our name is our mission. We stand right here in the heart of this town and love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus and make no apologies for it. As a pastor here, I had an interesting conversation with one of our grad students in the music education department. To help support herself, Kathy hired on part-time at one of the Chapel Hill churches. Not the one you're thinking of, it's another one. Her job was to direct the handbell choirs. She asked me one day, Pastor Dan, this church I work at, do they believe in Jesus? I said, well, they're supposed to. Why do you ask me that? She said, I never hear his name mentioned. She went on to say, that the only time she ever heard the name of Jesus was if it happened to appear in a song, but she never heard his name mentioned from the pulpit, even in prayer. That's religion. As a pastor here, I had a conversation with a longtime, highly respected citizen of this community. She and her husband had been intrigued by this new church that was starting. This is back in 1987. So they checked it out. Chapel Hill Wesleyan Church. They liked what they saw. They came on board. We were a bunch of young nobodies who had no clue about what we were doing. But when Forrest and Nancy signed on, they brought experience, Christian maturity, encouragement, finances, wisdom, and perhaps most valuable of all to us, a deep wealth of knowledge of Chapel Hill and how things work here. One day she said to me, Pastor Dan, you need to understand that we are way too Christ-centered for Chapel Hill. I said, 
Nancy, do you think that's a problem? I knew we weren't going to change, but I wanted to know, what's she thinking? She said, no, but you just need to know it is not well received in Chapel Hill. That would break the heart of Jesus, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that make him weep? Chapel Hill is one of the most religious towns you will ever see. And there are a great host of sincere Christian believers in this place. But for the majority, Jesus is a problem. So what makes Jesus weep over Chapel Hill? The same thing that made him weep over Jerusalem. In Matthew's account, Matthew 23, he places the event, this event in the last week of Jesus' life. And he sets the context for this passage by sharing the seven woes Jesus pronounces on religious people. He says, woe on them for blocking people from entering into the kingdom while refusing to enter into the kingdom themselves. Woe on them for making people converts of hell rather than converts of heaven. That's what happens when you push a religious agenda. Woe on them for their empty promises and trying not to have to keep them. Woe on them for being strictly religious but failing to be just, merciful, and faithful. Woe on them for being concerned with outward appearances but not with inner integrity. Woe on them for being concerned with looking religiously proper on the outside, but being spiritually dead on the inside. Woe on them for building monuments to the very prophets they had killed with their own hands. The significance of this outpouring of grief from Jesus is that he knows in a matter of days it is these religious people who will connive with the political powers to beat him within an inch of his life, drag him outside of town, nail him to a piece of wood, and hang him there until he dies. Because that's what human religion does. It embraces death. It attacks life. What did Peter say to these same religious people after the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit had filled the believers at Pentecost? This was his message. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He goes on to declare, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. 
That might be the single most sentence, most uh, glorious sentence ever said in a sermon. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. That's what religious people do. They kill people. Peter offers this invitation to all those religious people and to us. Repent then and turn to God that your sins may be wiped away, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Wherever religious people are killing other people, sucking the life out of them, smothering them with rules, stifling them until their dreams die, or snuffing out the light of hope in them, Jesus weeps because those are the same people who killed him. Here's the so what answer to this whole thing. So what? Should we ask Jesus the same question we ask the others? How did that persecution from religious people work out for you? It worked out great for us. And we're going to celebrate that sacrifice in remembrance of him through communion in a moment. And I want you to understand that what we do here with this bread and this cup is not a religious ceremony. Jesus promised to meet with us in a special way. His real presence is with us as we partake of his body and his blood through these elements. It's not a religious ceremony. It's a sacrament. He is present with us in this. So it worked out great for us, but not so much for him. Listen, we do not need more religious people in this town. Got enough. Don't need any more. We need more people who will settle for nothing less than a deep conversion of their souls. We need more people who will settle for nothing less than a deep conversion of their souls. That happens through a growing and deepening relationship with God through His Son, powered by His Holy Spirit. We need more people who through the transforming power of a relationship with Christ want to see themselves not becoming more religious, but becoming more and more like Jesus Christ and less and less like the person they used to be. It's not about religion. Religion has its good points. Religion has its noble moments. But ultimately, religion doesn't work. It's not about religion. It's about a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't be religious. 
that will kill you and you will end up killing other people. Be alive in Christ and let him change you and Chapel Hill through you. Love him, love others, and always say a good word for Jesus. Please do not give him cause to weep. Make him smile.